the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Best Fiends. After a day of work on the show, I need some time to decompress and cleanse my palate. Something to pick me up after a day of writing about some of the worst of the worst. Time after time and without fail, I reach for Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game filled with fun, engaging puzzles to keep your brain both entertained and challenged while you work to defeat some slugs, earn some meteor mites, and grow your character collection. With over 7,000 levels, the most adorable characters, and fun little challenges that update to keep your interest, this game is the perfect de-stressor that can keep you entertained in even the most boring of situations. To beat the traffic, I have to get into the carpool line with plenty of time to spare. So I spend a good chunk of my time parked with nothing to occupy me but my radio and my phone. Which is never a problem because I have best fiends. And now that it's fall, I just roll down my windows, let in the nice breeze, and try to blast through some levels and challenges while waiting to hear that final bell. I am on level 567 now and have been zipping through some of the challenges while I work to beat some pretty challenging levels. One of my favorite things about Best Fiends is that it doesn't require the internet, which is a lifesaver while on road trips or out somewhere where Wi-Fi is a little bit spotty. That way I can play whenever and wherever I want. And I love that I'm having some fun while still making my brain work. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Make the most of your fall downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. 
There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Gun control is a hot debate that, personally, I don't see ending anytime soon. It's worth mentioning, though, that the debate does not solely take place in the United States. On November 13, 1990, a man went on a shooting spree that sparked the debate, not in the USA, but in New Zealand. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. David Malcolm Gray was born on November 20th, 1956, and was described as an average student, quiet and unassuming, and a complete loner while growing up. His father, David, worked for a manufacturing company, and his mother, Mary, was a machinist. Unfortunately, David died in 1978, while Mary passed away in 1985. According to David's sister, their mother's death became a tipping point for her brother, and prompted him to move from Port Chalmers, New Zealand, to their family's holiday home in Aramuana. After his move, David, who was described as reclusive but harmless, became a frequent customer at a local Dunedin bookstore, and the owner, a man named Bill Brosnan, claimed that over the course of seven years of shopping, David had amassed quite the collection of military books and Soldier of Fortune magazines. In January of 1990, he threatened the assistant of the store with what appeared to be a shotgun in a cardboard box, and Bill had to serve him with a trespass notice the following month. Things began deteriorating for David Gray as he alienated his friends, seemed to be in constant conflict with his next-door neighbor over pet deaths, and on the morning of November 13, 1990, visited a bank in Dunedin where he objected angrily to a bank fee for his check. After this final slight, which may have been the straw that broke the camel's back in David's life, he went to a local gun shop in South Dunedin and placed a $100 deposit on a gun he claimed he was going to pick up the following week. He then went to a coffee shop where, upon being served a cold pie, he became irate and was asked to leave. As he did, he threatened, I'll be back. I'm going to get you. I'll blow you away. At around 7.30 p.m. that same day, David confronted his neighbor, Gary Holden, one last time about one of Gary's dogs who kept wandering onto David's property. Gary, who was suspicious that David had been killing his animals, fought back with David and something inside the recluse finally snapped. David then walked back to his house, retrieved his semi-automatic rifle, walked back outside and shot Gary Holden multiple times in the chest. While his neighbor lay defenseless on the ground, David walked over, took aim, and shot him in the head. Standing nearby were Gary's two young daughters, Chiquita and Jasmine, and his girlfriend, Julie Ann Bryson's adopted daughter, Rewa. Upon seeing what just happened, the girls fled into their home and hid while David made his way onto Gary's property. Upon entering the home, he found Chiquita and shot her in the chest and arms with a 22 caliber semi-automatic sporting rifle. The bullet lodged into her abdomen, yet somehow Chiquita survived and was able to escape out the back door, running past her father's body and into Julie Bryson's nearby home. Moving on, he found the two other girls and killed them instantly. When Chiquita made it to Julie's house, she realized that Rua and Jasmine were still inside of David's home. Having no idea that they were already dead, 
she got in her van and sped over to try and save the girls. As she did, with Chiquita in the car with her, David shot the van as Gary's home burned behind him. After killing the young girls, David began shooting indiscriminately throughout his neighborhood, targeting the Percy family who drove by and saw Gary's home ablaze and stopped to try and help. First to meet his weapon was a woman named Vanessa Percy, who was shot several times as she ran away from David Gray. She died a few hours later while still at the scene. Next, he turned on the three children accompanying her and killed Leo Wilson and Dion Percy. The boy's sister, Stacy, was critically injured but managed to survive. Ross Percy, Vanessa's husband, and the children's father, who had been driving the car, was shot in the head and perished. Next to die was Alecki Tali, followed very quickly by the murder of Tin Jameson and former Green Island mayor, Vic Crimp. Next were James Dixon, who came out looking for his dog, Eva Helen Dixon, James's mother, and neighbor Chris Cole, who went outside to see what the noise was. James was killed instantly while Eva and Chris were both shot at. Eva, who had recently had a hip replacement surgery, dove for cover, dragged herself into a ditch, and called 111 while Chris barricaded himself inside a phone booth and called police. While Eva was able to survive the whole ordeal and receive the George Medal for Bravery, help arrived too late for Chris Cole. Sergeant Stuart Guthrie was the first officer to arrive at the scene, and he enlisted the help of Constable Russell Anderson, who arrived just a short time before, and armed him with a rifle that belonged to an Aramoana resident. Together, and as darkness fell, the pair moved through the township and made their way to David's home, where Sergeant Guthrie instructed the constable to cover the front of the home while he went towards the back. That way, in the likely event that David made a run for it, he was the one in the line of fire rather than the constable. Around that time, Detective Paul Allen Knox and two more constables arrived and started the first step of their Cardin Contain Appeal Standard for Armed Offenders. As Sergeant Guthrie relayed David's movements to the other officers, he lost sight of the armed man and Constable Anderson tracked him coming out of the front of his home. Challenged by the gunman, David Gray quickly retreated back into his home and went towards the rear so he could take cover in the sand dunes of a neighboring home. That's when he came into contact with Sergeant Guthrie, who then yelled for his surrender and fired a warning shot. David shouted back, don't shoot, and Guthrie assumed that this was his surrender. Instead, David suddenly fired several shots, one of which hit Sergeant Guthrie in the head and killed him instantly. Minutes later, the Dunedin branch of the AOS arrived and sealed off the township with a roadblock on the only road that led out of Aramoana, while AOS from other areas were called in for support and ordered that David Gray be shot on sight. The commissioner of police then authorized the anti-terrorist squad to travel to Dunedin and locate David Gray. The group caught an early morning flight on the 14th as reporters began to swarm the area looking for any leads that they could report on. After a reconnaissance flight over the township at a very high altitude as David had already shot at a news helicopter earlier that morning, the crew of the Air Force Iroquois carried out low, slow passes over the bush where they believed David may be hiding and dropped tear gas grenades in an attempt to flush him out. They flew for over eight hours and helped position police snipers all around the surrounding hills. Meanwhile, completely unburdened, David Gray found some food to eat and then went to sleep. 
As more officials started to arrive on the 14th, the ATS started walking through the streets to clear all of the neighboring houses, passing the bodies of his victims along the way. While going from house to house, they checked a home that had a broken window on the northeastern side of the township, getting a brief look at David Gray and drawing their weapons. Putting a stun grenade through the window, it bounced off a mattress that David was using as a barricade and landed back near the police. Scattering, they continued to try and fire tear gas into the house while David began shooting not at police, but through a fiber light shed. The ATS opened fire and, as the firefight began, the Air Force Iroquois took position overhead to ensure that David could not escape. At 5.50 p.m. on November 14th, David Gray exited the house and yelled, Kill me, fucking kill me, you bastards, as he continued to shoot from the hip. Moments later, knocked down by the ATS gunfire, suffering from a gunshot wound to his eye, neck, chest, and groin. Despite his injuries, David fought until the bitter end, breaking free from his plastic handcuffs and berating the police for not killing him. He was finally arrested after almost 24 hours of terror, and at 6.10 p.m., David died in the hospital from his wounds. In the end, David became the 14th victim of his deadly attack. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in New Zealand history and was only surpassed 29 years later by the Christchurch mosque shootings. Three days after the shooting, David Gray's house was deliberately set on fire and burnt to the ground with over 50 or so residents, watching as the fire brigade showed up simply to make sure the fire didn't spread. His family later contacted the police and asked that any investigation into the arson be stopped. In the aftermath of the shooting, residents debated over gun control in New Zealand, which resulted in an amendment to the firearms legislation in 1992 that tightened gun control and the creation of the military-style semi-automatic category of firearms. Also in the aftermath of the shooting, survivors Chiquita Holden and Detective Stephen Vaughn who were both injured that day in November, married 27 years after the shooting. They met at the Dunedin Hospital while recovering from their injuries, comparing scars and signing each other's casts. Chiquita now works as a homicide specialist for victim support. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on November 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.